research shows that there's a major shift, um, not only um, in our culture, uh, but also within the church culture as well, within the United States. Um, the number of Americans within um, and involved in a community of faith as, as quickly um, declined. Now, automatically we can kind of go like chicken little. I think that's the, when you have kids, you learn about all sorts of things that you wish you didn't know about, like Dora the Explorer and, you know, dinosaurs that talk, all sorts of things. But um, it, it's not that we should be running around like chicken little, believing that the sky is falling. But if, if anything else, what is rising to the surface, even within the American church culture, is, is more of a pruning and a weeding. And what's rising to the surface, as you will see even in the book of Romans, is the remnant of God. It's a beautiful term for the people of God are truly coming to the surface. And so this isn't new to American culture. It may be new to us who've only lived for, for so many years or during such a time as this, uh, but this has been a constant cycle that we have seen within America for hundreds of years now, but also within the historical church. This even happened to Jesus, right? Every time Jesus gets a mega church, he says something really strange and weird, like, eat my flesh, drink my blood, and what happens? People leave, all right? The earliest critique or one of the ways that early people made fun of Christians was to call them cannibals after hearing this idea come from Jesus. I mean, to people who have never heard about Jesus, don't know about communion, taking of the bread and the, and the wine and those sorts of things, it sounds like we're eating it, dude, which is extremely strange, and you don't get a lot of invites to parties if you're that guy, all right? So this happens to Jesus, and it happens with us. Um, here recently, Pastor Justin and I joined about 13,000 other um, Southern Baptist Lewis, and Brian was with us, and several other of our friends, and uh, we were at this conference, 13,000 pastors, preachers, so it was like, you know, a big rah-rah fest for, for believers and leaders within churches, and at that place was uh, one of my favorite speakers, Dr. Uh, Russell Moore, and I, I'm so glad this dude is on our side, like, I'm so glad that he's a believer, and if you don't know who Dr. Russell Moore is, you need to know who this guy is, Google him. He's our friend, and he's a, a strong believer, and he used to work at the seminary that I went to. Uh, but Dr. Moore said this statement, and it's so true, um, but we have a great mistakenly, or this, we have, we have in, in many ways missed um, this within America and American history. It is, it's not that we are currently, he said this, it's not that we are currently in a post-Christian nation, so the reality is it's a pre-Christian nation. We have never been a Christian nation, okay? Uh, now, we have had season and moments where people were more okay with our morality. They were more okay with our charity. But as a whole, the United States of America has never been a Christian nation or a Christian country. According to uh, Barna, there's 100 million people uh, within the United States that have no contact with the local church. 100 million people not involved, not immersed, not um, involved in church membership within a local church. It's also estimated that within that 100 um, million people that there are 13 to 15 million of those people who claim to follow Jesus, though. 
Okay? Now, I'm going to be extremely generous here because I have major issue with that as well. All right? But I'm going to be extremely gracious. This is a grace-filled church, amen? This is a gospel-centered church, so we're going to be gracious, and we're going to say all those 13 to 15 million people are true believers. Graciously, all right? So that leaves 85 million people within the United States of America who are not connected to the local church and who are not believers. Scott Thomas, a long-term you know, church planter, he's written several books and these sorts of things. He read an article several years ago called Why We Plant Churches. Why does Mission Church want to be a church-planting church that helps plant churches, that plants more churches? Why? Well, it's because of things like this. Since 1991, um, the, the amount of people who are engaged in the life and body of a church has, has more than doubled in, in lower numbers. The, another thing that he says is that 3,500 churches within the United States of America close their doors every year. Let that sink in. 3,500 churches close their doors every year. Amongst the existing churches that we have, 80% of those have plateaued or declining. See, most church growth really isn't new growth, if we're honest. Most church growth is the swapping of believers from place to place. Recently, in an article from the Mission Shaped Church Report, it says this, The Christian story is is no longer at the heart of the nation. Although people may identify themselves as Christian, in the national census, for the majority that does not involve belonging to a worshiping community or any inclination that it should, many people have no identifiable interest in religious um, church or expression. Even here locally, Bowling Green, Kentucky, we have 162 churches. Now, some of you that are old school, you're going to think, that's enough. It's not enough. It's not enough. Even from the most recent recent census information that we have, um, 95,543 Bowling Green people are not involved in the local church. Okay, we have a population, I think, of 113,000, all right? Think about that. So right now, 162 churches. Did you know that every one of our churches in Bowling Green could be a mega church if all the people who are currently distant from the local church and immersion within the local church, and ultimately, I would say that's probably a reflection of their relationship with Jesus as well. More than ever, we need the gospel. More than ever, we need the gospel to saturate every street, every you know, apartment complex, every group of people on Bryant Way who can barely speak or don't speak English to the multi-million dollar homes that are right across the street from Briarwood. For the inner city, as I was visiting with another one of our churches with Hope House and, and Christ Fellowship and just driving through that area to get to this, this little meeting that we were having and just looking at these people and that diversity between Old Stone and across the tracks. We need the gospel 
to saturate. We can no longer assume that the person sitting in the cubicle or the guy saying, you like fries with that, has any idea of who Jesus is and what is the biblical gospel, the gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus, the gospel of the cross and the resurrection, the gospel that transforms one's lives, taking them from the hell and wrath that they deserve to eternal glory with God. Everyone needs the gospel. Everyone. This is no longer the the belt buckle of the Bible belt. You have to remove that ideology away from your thinking and your practice. People need Jesus. People need the gospel. So, how do we this morning talk about and experience, how do we as believers live, dwell, and operate in a culture that is like this? How do we live in neighborhoods? How do we recreate how, in a culture that is okay with our morals to a degree, but they are not okay with our message? How do we remain faithful to the gospel and to the mission of the gospel in a culture that is becoming increasingly hostile toward us as followers of Jesus? Well, hopefully you've been keeping 1 Peter there warm. Verse 6 says this in 7, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes through it, tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So this guy named Peter that we met last week, early on in his meeting of Jesus, he follows Jesus right, then he denies Jesus. We were having our family devotional this week, and we're going through 1 Peter as a family, and we were teaching Ava what we were learning about on Sundays, and we were like, who's Peter? She's like, he denied Jesus three times. I'm like, what happened after he saw Jesus resurrected? He writes the book of Acts. He becomes a preacher and teacher. He begins to share the gospel. God uses this man in powerful, powerful, powerful ways. And he tells us here at the very beginning of verse 6, in this you, what? Come on now. In this you, what? Rejoice. Y'all got to wake up. School's in session, all right? We're back at this thing, all right? We got stuff to do. In this you rejoice. What do we rejoice in? Well, we got to go back to last week, verses 1 through 5, where where Peter is writing to what he calls elect exiles, which I'll talk about in just a few minutes more. But he tells them over and over and over again, for the culture to be saturated with the gospel, we as believers must be saturated with the gospel. So before, before we can talk about marriage, before we can talk about suffering, before we can talk about submission to authority, before we can talk about elders, which are all things that we're going to talk about within 1 Peter, we must be centered in a firm foundation that is this, the gospel of Jesus Christ. You and I, we are sinners by nature. Our very nature is sin-filled. We deserve the wrath of God. We deserve the full punishment of divine wrath. Yet, God so loved his people, his chosen people, that he sent his son Jesus to die upon a cross, the punishment that we deserve, the cross that we should bear, Jesus does it, absorbing all of your sin. What does Peter remind us of last week? Past, 
present, and future sin has been covered, sprinkled. You've been dipped like a brown derby from the Frosty Freeze in Franklin in, in the blood of Jesus. And so if he's got you, he will never let you go. If you are truly saved, you will forever be saved. Amen? Amen. All right. I'm going to be on you. All right. New day. Mission Church. Write it down. All right. He is with us. He is for us. And in this, that's why he continues on. He says, in this you rejoice. What do you rejoice in? In knowing the security of your salvation that is found in Jesus. Now, let's read it again. He says, um, uh, lost my place. In this you rejoice, though for now a little while, if necessary. Circle, if necessary. You have been grieved by various trials. If necessary. So what is Peter telling us? He's referring something about God. There are things within our lives, there are trials within our lives, and sometimes we experience grief, pain, sorrow, and suffering from these trials. Sometimes you don't. All right? You know, sometimes you share the gospel with somebody and they're like, Ooh, I mean, they're crying in the office, ugly crying, lips quivering, snots a flow, and they're like, tell me more about this Jesus, right? Other times you share the gospel with somebody and, and they're really to, to relationally divorce you. They hate you. They ostracize you. They, they make fun of you. And we'll get more to this, if necessary, in just a minute. So we are grieved by various trials. The suffering and grief that Peter is, is talking about and his readers are experiencing is not necessarily, as we hinted to last week, a mandated punishment from the government. It, it's not necessarily that these people are being thrown into dens filled of lions or being burned at the stake and used as lamp, lamps with, to light up streets as many believers, followers of Jesus have been done throughout the years. It's not that they were being crucified on hillsides, um, but, but more about the idea and mentality of the way that, uh, that the world and culture viewed Christians during this time. Now what's interesting about it, it's going to sound a lot like 2015. The people that Peter is writing to, these believers, the culture, again, not imprisoning them, not beating them up typically, but they've become kind of suspicious, questioning, wondering if these people called pastors, teachers, elders, Christians are legit, right? I mean, even 50 or 60 years ago, if you were to tell somebody that you were a preacher, even if you weren't a Christian, there was a great respect for that title. Not anymore. Not from people outside the church or within the church in a, in a lot of situations. There, there isn't that, you know, even Andy Griffith, right? You had the preacher in town. People, when they had trouble, they went to the preacher's house. You called the preacher, but culture has changed. People have become suspicious. And, and in some cases, I understand it. When you got people saying, money, come into me, and they're buying $65 million jets from poor people's money, 
That's a questionable thing. We're having, you know, sexual immorality amongst pastors and preachers. Yeah, we begin to question these things. And so the culture is seeing all of that take place, and that is exactly the way that they are acting toward Christians. They are wanting to censor or dampen the message of the believers. Karen Jobes in the commentary says this, Because of their faith, they were being marginalized by their society, alienated in their relationships, and threatened, if, if not experiencing a loss of honor and socioeconomic standing. Howard Marshall in his commentary says this, All this state, it, it seems that state action was rare. And that what Christians had to fear was more in the nature of social ostracism, unfriendly acts by neighbors, pressure on Christian wives from pagan husbands, masters taking it out on Christian slaves, and other actions of that kind. It was sufficient in any case to make life uncomfortable. Man, if, if you're comfortable as a believer in 2015... You got something wrong. Like, you need to get out the instruction manual again, all right? Because it's, it's a very uncomfortable... I mean, have you had any political conversations with anybody in the last two weeks? If you're a believer, trouble is waiting. If you have stepped out and said that you don't agree with the mass majority in any way, even in the last several months, man, there is, there is some raw tension there with people and their thoughts and processes. And it is impossible to watch the news, television, movies, or read anything without Christians being um, verbally slandered. I mean, everything from Ned Flanders on The Simpsons, right? To the token Christians in a lot of television shows, or even sometimes the people that they bring on to the news, can be so off the gospel that immediately we are all blanketed with these stereotypes. You know, currently within the, the West, we aren't being physically persecuted. Uh, we aren't being beat up. But like the readers of 1 Peter, we are the elect exiles. In the words of Tim Chester and Steve Timmis in their book, Everyday Church, I encourage you to read that book. Christians are like immigrants, foreigners, temporary residents, Refugees, we do not belong. We do not have the rights of citizens. We are outsiders. We are living on the edge of culture. Now I want to press into you this morning. This is a side note. It's a rabbit trail, but I think it's worth taking just for a moment. It's not the entire theme of the sermon. Brothers, sisters, believers in this room, we need to be very careful about how we view immigration in this city and immigration in our country. Because as believers who are saturated with the gospel, it must transform the way in which we think about it. Because the gospel reminds us of what? What have we seen even already in 1 Peter? We as believers are those immigrants. We are are those sojourners. We are those refugees. See, the gospel is constantly saying, oh, I can't believe, right, that you, you got, you know, prostitutes, you know, all, all these things, all these things that we immediately, we say, make the bad list that we make on this list. You know what the gospel does to me and what it should do to all of us? 
is to tell us we are all of those people. We are those people, and so you, we need to be gracious toward immigration. I'm not saying there doesn't need to be reform and some, some new understanding and all those sorts of things. However, it's interesting, my, my buddy Mark Phillips, who we have a picture of back there in support um, through our church, and just pray for that. There's some things happening in the next several months um, for us and some possibilities even going to, to Africa for me to see what's going on there and all of that. And, um, and in that, I, I was, Mark was talking to him just his view after leaving the country and being a foreign missionary for like nine years is now seeing the beauty of immigration coming into the United States. Why? Because as of right now, it's an open country where immigrants are coming to our country and we get to share the gospel with them. Man, you want to reach the nations? Let's go to Western. Let's reach those students as they're packing in their stuff for master plan this week. Let's start building some relationships with international students that are coming to Western and let's pray they don't stay in America. Let's pray they get educated and most importantly, let's pray they get saved and they go back to their countries where they're from and they share the gospel and they become church planters and active members in their church man that is the mission of saturating people with the gospel and taking that gospel to the ends of the earth that's the beauty of it because guess what i'm them this is not my home i'm just here for a little while i have a responsibility and that responsibility is to share the gospel okay hop off the box all right one of the earliest expressions within Christianity was this making fun. Even the term Christian was a kind of a, a, a dogging on these people who were people of the way. That's what we were known as. And then the culture started calling us Christians. What does Christian mean? It means little Jesus, little Christ. So snickering over in the corner, you come walking by, they know that you're a Christian, and they begin to laugh and say, look at those little Jesuses walking by. One of the earliest forms of, of graffiti um, in the first to third century, they're not exactly for sure, they found this um, graffiti, I believe in a cave or somewhere, I've got a picture of it, um, and in this, this is like a, a, a picture of, this is like the cave version and then they've kind of drawn it out so you can see it a little bit better. This is called, the inscription here is called, Alexander worships his God. This is Alexander, this fellow right here. Notice the cross. Notice the head of Jesus. It's a donkey. It's a donkey. Alexander worships his God. What are they trying to say? Early on in Christendom, not just the threat of physical death, but the threat of being made fun of, right? To being laughed at. It was early in the culture. We, we have these images. We have this history that proclaims, man, there was a major tension between the majority of people living during this time and those who claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ. See, I would say that we have become more afraid of what someone will think or say to us for following Jesus than what they would do to us. Aren't you? 
Because the thing is, is like, most dudes in this room, when they walk into a room and they don't know everybody, just so you ladies know, they're sizing up everybody. I could whoop him. Yeah, I'm pointing at you. Him, him, uh, I don't know about him. <laughs> Oats, you can whoop me, all right? <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, they're, they're sizing up. I'm not, I'm not afraid that those dudes could beat me up because they could. I'm, I'm more afraid of what they'll think. I'm more afraid of what they will say. I mean, look at this whole bully culture that we ha- now have within our society. I mean, uh, Todd Hazel, member here at Mission Church, that's his, essentially his job for all of Warren County Public Schools. I think that's 14,000 students. Is He's bully police. And you know what this bullying is? It is verbal communication from one student to another. Think about how many conflicts. Anybody been in a fist fight this week? Anybody? Okay, y'all finally moved. All right, finally saw some action. All right? But how many of you were in a verbal altercation of some sort? Am I the only Christian here today? All right? Anybody, even if it was with your kid, your spouse, yeah, you better get your hand up. Spouses, you better get your hands up. You in a verbal, was it awkward? Yes. Was it difficult? Yes. It wasn't a, you know, if you hit your wife, I'm going to beat you up when we take you out of here. Or Oates is going to beat you up when we find out after worship is over. Come to the altar and get hit in the face. I mean, that's what we're going to do, okay? But many of us, probably most of us, if you're married or have children, you were in a verbal altercation of some sort that left you hurt for a moment or an extended period of time. This is what we have become afraid of in American Christianity. Now, what's interesting is sometimes I think that as American Christians, we have become arrogant in thinking that whatever we're going through today no other Christians throughout history have ever gone through. But as we've already learned this morning, is this true? No. I would contend that Christians throughout history have, have had it historically a lot worse than what you and I have had. But we can find great encouragement in this morning. Because guess what? They made it through it by the grace and mercy of God. And by the grace and mercy of God, we will as well. Rejoice, he says. What? Rejoice in the midst of these trials, in the midst of this pain, in in the midst of this great sorrow. They are also simultaneously rejoicing. See, true biblical joy is not found in your circumstances. It is found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter says, therefore, that Christians will experience grief. What is grief? Signifies pain of the body, of the mind. And by, uh, a means by one to experience severe mental or emotional distress or physical pain, which may be accompanied by sadness, sorrow, or grief. How many of you have ever experienced grief? Man, I have. What Peter is not saying, what the gospel is not saying, is that you've got to slap some fake 
smile on your grill and pretend like nothing is wrong. That is not the gospel. That is not what he is saying here. It is while in the midst of that great pain and agony and mental distress, you remember and continue to preach yourself the gospel of Jesus Christ. That that in the midst of this darkness, there is the light of God's great glory and wisdom some way working its way through all of your pain and all of your sorrow. We must understand there, there is a grief. There's a grief caused by sin. If you have sinned, you have probably caused yourself grief for that. You've had pain because of that. This week I read an article from the IMB, that means International Mission Board, and there was a family visiting family. They're, they're full-time missionaries. I can't remember where they are, but they were in Georgia visiting family. Husband, wife, I think two or three kids in the car. They're going to visit some more family. Tractor trailer this week. It tries to merge, rams them into a retaining wall, dumps hazardous material all over the ground there in Georgia and on the interstate causing it to be very difficult to rescue this family. And the mom dies in the car. Dad, the other kids go to the hospital and are pretty much just fine. Great pain. Great sorrow. Great agony. Great mental distress and yet as believers we should not grieve like the world is coming to an end but we get to grieve in the midst of all of that crying your tears hurt pain sorrow all of those things are real don't let anybody fake you out of that or try to make you feel less than because you are grieving yet simultaneously remember the gospel be saturated in the gospel because what do we know we know for as believers in some way god is involved in the believers suffering pain and grief god is there god doesn't afflict us because he thinks it's fun God doesn't grieve us or cause us um, to experience this sorrow and this pain because in some way he, he thinks that we are his, his puppets that we can just simply manipulate and, and just have a, a good time causing this punishment. Peter is trying to show us something extremely deep this morning. This is meat and potatoes. Is God there? Yes. Is he involved in this? Yes. It appears as though he can cause you to to not experience that pain and sorrow. And yet sometimes God allows this to take place. He allows you to to go through it. He, He is trying 
to do something. And it is this weird paradox because God doesn't sin, God doesn't create evil or any of those things. But what Peter's really getting at, and we'll get to in a few weeks, is, is that they're experiencing these trials and persecution not to belittle death, not to belittle cancer or any of those horrific things. What he is saying is that these people right now are experiencing these trials and this grief because they are actively engaging in the mission of doing the will of of God. And sometimes when they step in in faith to preach the gospel, people love them. And sometimes when they do it, it causes them great pain. And yet, for the believer, what does the believer do? They rejoice. See, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know everything that everybody is going on in here. But if you're a believer, I want you to know this. If you are going through some sort of pain and agony for doing what is right and good and holy according to the will of God, then according to his word, which I believe to be true, it's necessary for you. For some people, this pain and agony is seasonal. For others of us, it is a lifelong journey of these things and yet as believers we must be reminded here this morning that if you are experiencing that that in some way it is necessary from God because from his view you will ultimately better be better for this and more gospel honoring than you would if you didn't so he does this he's involved in this One of my favorite passages of Scripture is found in Romans chapter 8, and it says that all things work for the good, right, of those who are called according to His purposes. Now what that passage isn't saying, though, is everything you go through is good. That's not what he's saying. What is he saying? He's telling us, he's reminding us that all things work for the good, that God is going to take a really terrible thing, a a great suffering within your life, a great pain within your life. And for the believer and the believer only, these promises are true, that no matter how dark it seems, God is going to take this pain, suffering, and sorrow, and he is going to use it for your good and ultimately for his glory. We must not, as Peter reminds us last week in verses 1 through 5, forget that there is a greater inheritance out there awaiting for us. See, ladies and gentlemen, it is, it is to better walk to, for you as a believer to walk through cancer and end up in glory with God than to go through this life, to never be ill, to not have great pain, and great sorrow, and for your life to end without Jesus. It is is better for for you to, to lose everything, to gain everything in heaven with Jesus, 
than to gain everything on this earth, from every commercial that's pumping into us, every magazine that we read, everything on the internet's pumping into us. Get more, get more, get gluttonous on the things of this earth. And here's the thing, if you were to gain all of those things, have all the, the money in the world making it rain on your friends, and not have Jesus in the end, it would have been better for you if you lost everything. May we be reminded, as John says in John chapter 16, verse 20, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Colossians 3.2, set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Hebrews 10.32-36, throwing some grenades at you this morning. But recall the former days when you, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with the suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those um, so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Get that. Steal my stuff! Because it's not yours, believers. Since you knew that you yourselves had better possession in an abiding, abiding one, therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that, that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. What is promised? Verse 7, he gives us some illustrations here, right? These various trials, God is at work in them. Why? Verse 7, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes through it, tested by fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. God is at work. And what is He doing? I don't know if this is reflective of your life, but my, my, my life has been very interesting. I, you can always say, man, there's been people out there who have a lot worse than I have. All of that, I get that, that's not a, a, a woe is me, but um, you know, there have been issues in my life that have done nothing but thrust my knees to the floor in asking God for help. See, God is going to take believers through the refiner's fire. How many of you have walked with people who were supposedly in faith and it was all good until something got tough? So they walk through a fire. And, and a lot of people, once they really have to experience some difficulty and suffering, you do one of two things. You either cling more to Jesus or you run from Him. You cling more to the Gospel. You pray like you have never prayed before. You, you read the Bible in the midst of that storm in that season like you have never done before. And yet some people, when they go from that, they immediately ostracize themselves from the church. They remove themselves from the Gospel. They remove themselves from just the, the, the walking and serving as a believer. They run from God in pain. And in agony. See, God uses these testing and these trials 
to purify the believer and to see who by faith and grace are his true children. Laura and I, we um, usually kind of fall into the bed about every nine o'clock, about nine o'clock every night after putting our kids to bed and doing all the things that parents do. You know, it's like a drive-by car wash. We call those baths at our house. I mean, all the things that you've got to do, you kind of get tired and you, you fall into bed. And for us, just the, the, the brain, you know, wasting away is we'll, we will watch everything that is practically on the Discovery Channel. And it seems as though everything they put on the Discovery Channel is about Alaska. Now, someone in our presence just got back from Alaska. Sinner. And Laura and I have fallen in love. We have a long-distance relationship with Alaska. We love that place. Did y'all know that they consider in Alaska bald eagles to be like vultures and blackbirds in Kentucky? They hate those things. They hate them. They despise them. But down here we're like, I saw a bald eagle. Right? We love them. And they hate them. Anyway, sorry. So I love Alaska. And one of the things that I watch about Alaska is these gold rush shows, you know, where they're, and, and you see these guys and they're like, just pounding the way, digging down, digging down to get just little specks of gold, right? And then they take all the gold and they, they sift it out. I mean, it's just a crazy process. I wish I could give like 10 days to go live and do this and then come home because I would hate it. But for those 10 days, well, day one and two would be awesome. From then on, it would be terrible. But it's interesting because they take all of those little gold nuggets and they melt it down. They'll show you on this show. And while they're melting it down, you look at the, this like melted gold, and all, the sur- all of a sudden to the surface begins to, to come all this black soot and dirt that can only be extracted from that gold to purify that gold if it's heated up. And then that goldsmith takes it, and he just skims off the top. And he does it again. Keeps skimming, keeps skimming. All that detoxing, all that dirt, all that stuff rises to the top and he, he removes it. I, I've heard it said, I don't know if this is true, that the way that they know it's, it's really pure and clean is when the goldsmith looks into the melted gold, he can see his reflection. What an illustration of God in our lives. Every trial, every sorrow, every pain is just the master goldsmith bringing to the surface the sin, the disobedience, the unfaithfulness, the doubts, so that he himself, when he peers into us, can see the reflection of his son, Jesus. So at the end of the day, if I have to go through all the things I go through, if you have to go through all the things that you have to go through to ultimately look and sound and speak like Jesus, then it's worth it. Man, I pray that, I'm not there, I pray that I can get to the point where I can say, God, thank you for this flat tire. Thank you that my transmission went out. Thank you that my house burnt to the ground. Thank you that they hate me. Thank you that they gossip about me and they think that I'm a a peddler of money and the gospel. Thank you, because these are all reflections of of even things that we see that Peter and Paul talks about. And thank you that they're coming against me. And I pray that God would do that in my life. 
Another thing that you would see if you've ever been familiar with like boxers and like MMA fighters and different things, what happens a lot of times is, is they punch so hard and so much that literally within their hands or kickboxers in their shins, they get small fractures. They actually crack the bone. But over time, what happens is, is the body calcifies itself. It, it heals itself where it was once cracked. And that's why you can see those guys who take those big, like, you know, uh, cinder blocks and they, like, can knock them, their hands all through it. It's because, essentially, they have, over time, broken their hand, 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 their shin, or whatever it is. Because every time it breaks, it actually gets stronger and gets stronger and gets stronger. Sometimes God has to put small fractures into our lives to make us better fighters for the gospel. Suffering is, is painful. It hurts. Yet we can be reminded what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11-12, through 12, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now some of you have, some of us, haven't maybe experienced this. God is calling us this morning. We need to be more vocal about the gospel and when we are, we need to realize that some of these things are going to take place. But we can carry on. Verse 8 says this, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you did not, do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. I don't know about you, but well, there's some drawings, some really bad memes that you can share if you really believe in Jesus that Adam keeps sending me. Um, other than those things, I have not physically seen Jesus. I've seen the effects of Jesus' work. And yet, like early believers, like you believers in this room who have not physically touched Jesus yet or seen His scars Yet, he is unseen, yet he is loved. He is unseen, yet we believe. And in this, we find great joy in knowing this, in this tension of now but not yet, that, that Jesus is here with us and yet is going to be more with us. Let us not forget chapter, uh, I think, 19 in the book of Revelation that Jesus is coming back and he's coming back in the flesh and he is not coming back as some peasant or some baby lying in a manger, but he is coming back riding a white horse, tatted all up, big sword in his hand, declaring that he is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So that is why we have a living hope. We have placed our hope in someone. His name is Jesus. In closing this, verse 10 and 11, 12, 
concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into the, which the angels long to look. Ladies and gentlemen, the brothers and sisters, Mission Church, non-believer, the pattern of the gospel is this. Suffering, then glory. The Old Testament prophets and believers and followers of God believe that they may not physically see the results of their laboring in their time, but they saw that it was fit to endure great suffering, great pain, great persecution in the hopes that, that you and I even one day in a distant future, would still know this message of Jesus Christ. They saw it as worth it. Their suffering, their servanthood. We're going to do this for our children's 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 children. And you know what? At Mission Church, we may not see Mission Church's most glorious of days. But if we remain faithful, I believe that there's a day out there where this legacy, where my wife's legacy, because this church used to be two. We're Baptists, so we'll say four. We'll count our kids, right? <laughs> we just increased. And then I'm, you know, twisted Justin and Stephanie. Well, Justin, over some wings, he brought Stephanie. And now you're here. We may not see. I pray that we do. But the heartbeat is that we would leave a, a legacy, an eternal legacy for the gospel of Jesus Christ that hundreds of years from now, from Bowling Green, Kentucky, whatever Bowling Green looks like and whatever America looks like and any of these things, that there would still be a, a remnant of faithful believers in Jesus Christ that are about worshiping Jesus, making disciples and multiplying to the ends of the earth. That it will be ingrained in those people. We'll just be a, a, a mention on the history of the internet in the history page of missionchurch.org or whatever it is. Is it worth it? Is it worth the laboring? Is it worth, hopefully that church will not have to set up in a school gym. Amen? Alright? Hopefully they will not but hopefully they'll be more missional, more engaged in the world than even we are today. See, the pattern of the gospel is suffering, then glory. This is the example of Jesus. William Penn once said this, No pain, no palm, no thorns, no thro throne, no gall, no glory, no cross, no crown. In Hebrews chapter 11, If I can find it. Hebrews chapter 11. 
says this. I'm sorry, I lied to you. 13. Verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for the sin are burned outside the camp. Verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up sacrifice of praise to God. That is the the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This is the pattern and the illustration of Jesus. What do they do to Jesus? They put Jesus outside of the city. They put him in as the outliers. He is the ultimate one that was marginalized more than any person in the history of all humanity. He goes outside of the city. He dies outside of the city. And yet, who does he do it for? Those dwelling inside of it. He was pushed out but ultimately so those people could come in. As our culture pushes us, may we be reminded this morning that whenever that happens, it gives us a great opportunity to saturate those people in our culture with the Gospel, illustrating what we have seen in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus dies outside the city gates. And ladies and gentlemen, if we have to to die for the sake of the gospel, being less popular, being ostracized, and yet God use our life and mission and voice in the proclamation and the acknowledgement of the greatness of our God, then may we this morning find great hope in the midst of these trials and suffering that in the end, it's worth it. It's worth it. It's worth it. And I pray that that would be the prayer of our people this morning. God, no matter what, if I want to be like you, this is what they did to you. So help me not to whine when they're doing it to me. But if I have to go to be through this to be more like you, then God, so, so be it. May you be glorified, may you be honored, and may you draw all men and women unto yourself. May I be saturated in the gospel. And may I saturate others in it as well. Man, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, man, our heartbeat is that Jesus would save you this morning. Myself, Pastor Justin, one of the other believers here, would love to talk to you more about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. But know this, ultimately, if you become saved, if Jesus has saved you, it is all because of His work. It is not because you've been rotten enough that you can run from it, and it's not because you've been good enough that you can get it on your own.
but it is all because of Jesus. And if you're going through pain, suffering, or trial in any way, and we want to pray for you this morning. We want to speak with you this morning. We want to pastor you this morning. We want to help you this morning. Or we want to meet with you later on this week to bring care toward you and to help you, to pray for you. Because in the end, we believe it's worth it. Let's pray.